A Miami-Dade commissioner is facing criminal charges after a corruption probe. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Miami-Dade Commissioner Joe Martinez, who was facing felony charges after an arrest. We're talking with a Florida politics reporter to discuss the fallout. With lessons learned from Hurricane Maria five years ago, the diaspora sending aid to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Fiona. And home prices have fallen in South Florida, but are the key issues of inventory still affecting the market? Finally, after nearly a decade, a $1.3 billion transit-friendly neighborhood is coming to West Palm Beach. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup, after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Through an executive order, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Miami-Dade Commissioner Joe Martinez on Tuesday, three weeks after the commissioner turned himself in on felony charges of unlawful compensation and conspiracy to commit unlawful compensation. Quote, it is in the best interest of the residents of Miami-Dade County that Martinez be immediately suspended from the public office that he holds. End quote. The governor's director of communications, Taryn Fisk, said that in a memo. Unlawful compensation is a second-degree felony that is punishable up to 15 years in prison, and conspiracy to commit unlawful compensation is a third-degree felony that is punishable up to five years in prison. Joining us now to discuss the suspension is Jesse Schechner, South Florida reporter for Florida Politics. Jesse, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Uh, Jesse, tell us what exactly is unlawful compensation? Well, it's sort of a, a kissing cousin to uh, to bribery. It's a it's a it's basically pay to play. It um, it's acceptance of any kind of payment um, for performing an act in one's official capacity. And uh, and there's actually a a condition where and this is where the conspiracy to commit also comes in. Where it's also you know you don't actually have to have an outcome it's just accepting the compensation outright uh, a kissing cousin to bribery i think i need to put that on a shirt <laughs> um and how, how did the situation arise what what led the county inspector general's office and state attorney Catherine fernandez rundle's office to investigate martinez this is a result of a of a five years long investigation into um a assumed pay-to-play scheme uh, in which Martinez accepted $15,000 over a period of time in the form of three separate $5,000 payments to proffer legislation at the Miami-Dade County Commission that would ease restrictions on uh, containers uh, allowed to be on site at at shopping centers. The, The law currently stands that there can be one shipping container per business, I believe it is, on site. Um, and two men, one the owner of a, of, a, uh, of a supermarket and the other his landlord, uh, kept incurring fines for having more than that number on site. Um, Martinez ultimately uh, had a piece of legislation that he filed but then quickly withdrew that would have addressed that and eased those restrictions. Um, and uh, several years later, uh, these charges came along. And, and $15,000 is the number, correct? Yes. Over the course, uh, 
through three separate five thousand dollar payments. Yes. Right. Right. And, and after his arrest, Martinez attended the uh, county's first 2023 budget hearing on September 8th. He cast preliminary votes on the budget ordinances. Uh, does his vote count or not? Well, his vote counted in that first one to have it have those items clear to the uh, to the second budget hearing. But the final budget hearing did not include his vote. Um, and so, you know, they passed nonetheless the ones that did uh, without his vote. And and was that the uh, final budget hearing? Yes. Cool. And, and I, I guess we could segue to the next question here. Uh, have George Negrin, the supermarket owner, and his landlord, Sergio Delgado, been faced with any charges? Of course, uh, you know, um, the commissioner has certainly made headlines here, but but what about those particular in- individuals? I haven't seen anything announced yet. Um, so, you know, that's still outstanding. Uh, I suppose we'll see um, soon enough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's been rumor that that they themselves might have been the ones to have tipped the uh, tipped the offices off, but that's supposition. So right, right. Now, now considering he could spend up to 15 years due to a second degree felony and five years for a third degree, what is Martinez and his camp saying in his defense? So the the prior there was a pause in between Martinez's public service uh, when he left his seat on the county commission to run for uh, for Congress and uh, and also uh, for a, uh, a run at the Miami-Dade mayoralty. Uh, during that time, uh, the OIG Office of Inspector General confirmed that he had received a payment from um, those men. Uh, I believe it was Negron. I may be mistaken for uh, consulting work. It was a twenty thousand dollar check. Uh, that came in during that time. Um, so there is uh, an instance of a precedent where he did receive payment for work outside of his official capacities in government for for uh, in the private sector um, for, you know, those people. Um, what his defense is likely to be is that the $15,000 payment that he received later, and, and I say payment, but of course, it's over the course of three separate checks. And that's important, too, because, you know, that staggered amount, some of which I believe came prior to his uh, reelection or, or election back into the commission. Uh, so his argument, his defense is likely to be that that was just outstanding payment from his prior work that he had not yet been paid. And uh, it was the completion of that payment and that it was, uh, you know, him receiving that payment part of it while in office. Uh, while at the same time or nearby filing legislation to ease uh, restrictions on containers at shopping centers was just coincidence. And it's really not uncommon for commissioners to file ordinances to change policy after speaking with members of their local business communities to you know, ease the difficulties that some of them face. That's a common thing that happens. Hmm. And, and thanks for clarifying those uh, distinctions. Now, DeSantis also mentioned he'd already received recommendations for replacements. But has there been mention about what qualities or experience are they looking for in the candidates? So all the Santos has really said uh, is that, you know, he, he hopes that or he, he believes that he'll probably be, be uh, appointing someone um, from the district. Uh, district 11 is, is, a, is kind of a, a, one of two districts in the county that has no cities in it so that those commissioners that represent those districts carry kind of a, an interesting degree of power. They're the de facto mayors of those areas. So it should be someone ideally who's representative of that area. Um, 
other than that, I think that it's probably pretty, uh, you know, you, you can put your money on it, that it's going to be someone who's Republican that reflects uh, the, the electorate in those areas, too. So it isn't uh, in some cases that we've seen with the, uh, the school boards in the past where it's almost flipping all of the seats over from from blue to red. This would be someone who at least uh, their political outlook or the political affiliation comports with the person whom they're replacing. Yeah, considering that this is the sixth suspension of an elected official by by DeSantis since early August, uh, but the first due to a felony arrest. Um, now, Martha uh, Bueno, elected community council chair, asked to be considered as potential replacement. Are there chances DeSantis appoints her? I mean, it's really hard to say uh, who he'll pick. Um, it may come down to someone uh, with whom DeSantis has uh, more direct ties. Um, there have been rumors, you know, several other rumored names. Um, she's among them. Uh, she ran unsuccessfully for uh, the District 10 seat. Uh, she lost to uh, Miami-Dade State Representative Anthony Rodriguez. Um, but she's thrown her hat into the ring for contention. And, you know, it's it's a smart thing to do. Why not? Uh, you know, squeaky wheel gets the oil, as they say. Yeah, as they say. Well, what, what's next in this situation? Any chances for a trial? Uh, does this situation have any large effect on residents of Miami-Dade County? I mean, it has the effect in that, you know, this is the, the Miami-Dade Commission. Those those roles are very powerful, um, very influential. So it's going to have a big effect as far as uh, the trial coming down the line. There's still a few steps uh, in front of that. Um, you know, the, the arraignment is still pending. Um, and then it's also up to, you know, what either party decides to do. Um, you know, Martinez has, has options, um, though he is he's likely to not uh, resign, which would um, possibly turn over the power to the Miami-Dade Commission to to make his appointment before DeSantis does. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a there's still a lot of steps going on. We're not going to see a trial for, for quite some time, I don't think. Jesse Schechner is South Florida reporter for Florida Politics. Thank you so much for your time, Jess. Pleasure to be here. Have a good one. Absolutely. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Hurricane Fiona made landfall on Puerto Rico Sunday, bringing heavy amounts of rain and destruction. According to the National Hurricane Center, northern Puerto Rico saw 4 to 12 inches of rain, with a maximum of 20 inches in some areas. Southern Puerto Rico saw 12 to 20 inches of rain, rain, with some regions receiving nearly 3 feet of rain during Fiona. Fiona hit Puerto Rico close to the date Hurricane Maria hit the island five years ago, and they are still recovering from the damage caused by Maria. How has Puerto Rico and the diaspora and the U.S. learned from Maria? Uh, joining us to discuss the impacts of these hurricanes is WLRN's America's editor, Tim Pageant. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup, Tim. Thanks, Wilkin. Great to be here. Absolutely. Great to see you. Uh, now, Hurricane Fiona struck Puerto Rico as a Category 1 storm. Tell us about the impact that it has had on the island. Mostly what you mentioned, the rain. I mean, up to three feet, as you said, in southern uh, Puerto Rico, where it's, uh, the, you know, the eye of the storm, the center of it, really didn't even touch the island. It just sort of grazed the south and west coast. But that rain was what really caused the catastrophe this time around, despite the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, this was not a Category 4 like 2017 and with Maria five years ago. This was only Category 1. But it was that rain, the flooding. You've, you've seen pictures, for example. There was one on, on Twitter that was very interesting. It it showed one area of, of southern Puerto Rico from five years ago, and then uh, the same area 
after uh, Fiona last uh, this this past week, and they look the same, despite the fact that five years ago the hurricane was so much more powerful. Wow. And um, Hurricane Maria hit the island five years ago on September 20th. Are we seeing any parallels at all? Well, we are in, 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 in terms of we're reminded of just how fragile and vulnerable Puerto Rico's electric grid is and, and really how dysfunctional uh, it is. I mean, again, this was a Category 4 storm five years ago. You had 80% of the island, if not more, without power for weeks and weeks. This was only a Category 1 storm, and right now uh, uh, you only have about a third of the island has had its power restored since it since it struck the island uh, last Sunday. So we're, we're it doesn't matter if it's Category 1 or Category 4. This is such an awfully dysfunctional electrical grid in Puerto Rico, and uh, it, it just shows you how little has been done to really fix it in the past five years. And, and that's such an important point you just made, that it doesn't matter what category the storm is. Right. And as Floridians, we tend to harp right. on the yeah. categories of storms and mm-hmm. whether to take a five more seriously than a one. Uh, but to your point, it's the infrastructure that matters here. Exactly. Um, how did the Puerto Rican diaspora help of the country in 2017? Oh, uh, immensely. I mean, if you remember back in 2017, one of the big problems was that relief uh, supplies and aid was getting to Puerto Rico. It was getting to the port of San Juan, for example, but for because of a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of people dropping the ball, both in Puerto Rico and on the U.S. government side, the, the aid wasn't getting into the island, not into these remote areas in the center of the island, for example. So a lot of South Florida Puerto Ricans were getting this message from their friends and relatives on the island, and they took it upon themselves to start uh, sending charter uh, planes full of relief supplies, uh, cargo uh, containers, for example, and and it and it wasn't this. It, it was a lot of um, uh, very smart stuff uh, that the that the federal government uh, wasn't sending in, like blue roof tarps that you really need to sort of get your life going again. Uh, water buckets so that you can put them outside and catch rain, so that you're not using your the bottled water for your washing and things like that. And most of all, generators. We saw the South Florida diaspora here do a, 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 a magnificent job of getting that stuff into the communities on the island. Not, not granted, it wasn't as they, they weren't sending the volume of aid that the federal government uh, you know, was sending, but they were being very surgical about getting relief in. And I think that's what you're going to see them do uh, this time around as well. And uh, man, that that is that is such a, a bevy of experiences in terms of folks getting out there and doing what they need to do. Um, how, how did the U.S. response compare to the diaspora's response? Well, eventually the U.S. did start getting relief aid into uh, the island, but it just it just took FEMA so long, uh, and and that's what that's what the diaspora here is telling me they hope will not be repeated this time. They hope that the, the, the you know, for example, uh, di- a lot of diaspora leaders here are telling me they're not sending, you know, food and other aid immediately to San Juan right now this time. They're waiting to hear from their representatives, their people on the ground, where is the aid needed most? And then they're going to try to send it more directly into those communities. Um, like a place like Utuado in the center of the island. Um, five years ago, that that little community there in a very remote area of Puerto Rico would have been lost had it not been for a lot of South Florida uh, uh, Puerto Ricans here recognizing that they needed to send aid directly to it. Well, this time again, that same uh, little hamlet, Utuado, where a bridge was, was collapsed over the river there, it needs it again. And, and, and that's the kind of community that the South Florida Puerto Rican diaspora here is going to be targeting.
Yeah, that, that you know, it's it's uh, not enough to have just cultural knowledge, but geographical knowledge. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Definitely. Um, what were the important lessons that the diaspora here in South Florida learned from Hurricane Maria in 2017? Has their approach been more proactive in the wake of Hurricane Fiona? I, I, I don't think it's been more proactive as much as, as you just said, they've learned lessons. They, they've learned what they don't want to see repeated from 2017. So again, they're not rushing in with, you know, sending canned foods in, in, in huge containers to San Juan right now in ships. They're waiting to hear from the island, as I said before, where is it most needed? Where, as, as one diaspora member here told me, where have people lost everything? And that's where we want to focus the bulk of, of our aid instead of just, you know, throwing it into the port in San Juan and then hoping that it'll it'll trickle into the island. That's not how they want to do things this time. Where have people lost everything? Oh, I th- on, the southern, on the southern coast uh, in particular. I, I talked to one um, a diaspora leader here. Uh, she said that her, her, grand, her, her aunt was in a, uh, a home for the elderly just outside of Ponce on the southern coast of Puerto Rico. The, the, the entire building was swallowed up by water, and it took her days to find out if her aunt was, was still safe. Fortunately, turned out she was. Yeah, just just that statement alone, people losing everything. Right. It's that, hard to fathom. That's that's it, what they want to prioritize this time. It yeah. really is. And and it's important to make that risk assessment so you can have a, a targeted approach uh, right. to your point that you're making right now. Now, we're we're seeing a quicker response in a way this time from the US. On Wednesday, President Biden approved federal uh, emergency right. aid to be made available to the government of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else the United States has done to aid Puerto Rico or the regions being affected by Fiona? Well, I, I would say right now, one of the big things the United States can do is is help more with debt relief for Puerto Rico. That's one of the things that, that, that kept it back from really uh, uh, effectively uh, addressing the rebuilding of the island uh, t- five years ago. It's, it's what's going to hurt them as they try to rebuild the island after Fiona. You're talking about, you know, around $70 billion in debt. The the electric grid itself, the 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 utility on Puerto Rico known as PREPA, which is their FPL, they're nine billion dollars in debt, and the federal oversight board that's helping the the island try to restructure its debt is now at at a, at, at loggerheads with the bondholders of that debt of, of PREPA, and 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 until the United States can help Puerto Rico figure out how to reduce that debt, it's going to be very hard for it to keep fixing, for example, that that dysfunctional electrical. Uh, infrastructure and grid that we were just talking about. And obviously that debt has a financial impact on the government and, you know, municipalities as well in terms of how it responds, right? Exactly. It had very, very much a trickle-down effect. Um, Other islands in the Caribbean have been affected by Hurricane Fiona as well, such Mm -hmm. as the the Dominican Republic. Right. Um, What response have we heard or seen from various Caribbean diasporas? There isn't really a a large Dominican diaspora here in South Florida. You'll find that more, for example, in New York. And I think that their their response has been been pretty robust as well. Uh, Although I don't think the Dominican Republic really was hit as hard as uh, the the, the south and west coast of Puerto Rico were by Fiona. And then fortunately, uh, you know, as it turned north, it did hurt, did hit the, the Turks and Caicos, uh, a, a, a British uh, a territory there. And then, fortunately, uh, it's looking like it's going to not hit Bermuda as it goes north. It's it's swinging to to the west of, of that tiny island. So, the, 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 you know, the 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 big thing right now is going to see how badly it affects of all people Canada. 
Canada. And when I saw the trajectory, I was like, man, we are three years into this Netflix series that's not ending. Canada and hurricanes. Not not two words we usually put together down right. here. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and we're we're doing a little preparation for ourselves here in South exactly. Florida as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Tim Pageant is WLRN's America's editor. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Wilkin. Still to come, home prices in Miami-Dade and Broward finally fell. But what does that really mean? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Home prices in South Florida are finally falling. Yes, You heard that right. Last month, prices fell in Miami-Dade for the first time since 2021. And prices in Broward have dipped for the first time in months. For those who have been waiting for the market to cool down, this is great news. But the key issues remain. What's the status of of housing inventory in South Florida? And how do rising interest rates uh, factor in this issue? Joining the conversation, how uh, how has your hunt for housing been this past year? Are prices falling fast enough for you? Call us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining us on the South Florida Roundup now is Michael Butler, real estate, editor, real estate reporter for the Miami Herald. Michael, how are you? Hey, how you doing? Hello, hello. This is Michael Butler from Miami Herald. Hey, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, first, let's discuss the reasons behind the overheated housing market. What were some of the factors that made the Tri-County area an attractive place to purchase property? So, okay, this is a lot to unpack. I think the biggest thing is that, you know, uh, we've been seeing the results of over, just over the pandemic, People moving from the Upper East Coast down to Miami permanently, um, as well as from the West Coast. And it's had an outsized effect on the housing market for local residents because we're seeing a huge contingent of individuals who have the income to be able to afford uh, these higher prices. But at the same time, it seems to be pushing a lot of people out. Right. So 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 there's been a uh, massive influx of out-of-state buyers uh, who, who are calling South Florida home now. Uh, what what were the prices for homes and condos at the height uh, of these increases? Oh, oh, sorry, say it one more time. What were the prices for homes and condos at the height of these increases? Man. <laughs> so that, so at the at the heights, um, I would look at So I'll give you an example. For uh, I'll just give you an example. So let's say we're talking about a three-bedroom, two-bath house and miami gardens right um maybe it's uh it's it's been appraised and it's valued at i would say 350 or excuse me three hundred fifty thousand dollars height so far that house has uh the value of the house is mushroomed to let's say about five hundred and fifty thousand dollars and so if so you're looking at somebody trying to buy a house that house right now paying an extra $200,000. $200,000. And that's before you have all the associated fees that come with the housing purchase. And just the, re- the reality is a lot of people right now are concerned because A, they can't buy property if they wanted to. But if you were about to buy a house, you might be wondering whether or not you should wait that much longer because the market might correct itself. At the same time, it remains to be seen what a market price will look like. And so, yeah, you're looking at properties that, or property rather, that m- might have been 
two thirds might have been valued at two thirds of its current appraisal. Like just the the price and value just shooting up tremendously. Wow, wow. And, and how large is the price drop in the South Florida market? Has it been a consistent drop? Yeah, so this is the thing. And uh, my my colleague, Rebecca San Juan and I, uh, who was also on the, on the business desk, uh, we both work on real estate. Uh, she can attest to this. You're looking at maybe a, a $20,000 drop between uh, July to August, right? A $20,000 drop. Yeah. Now, technically, technically, there that that indicates there was a drop, right? Like technically, uh, but in terms of like a more significant drop, twenty thousand dollars might not mean a whole lot when you're still overpriced by like two hundred thousand dollars. So the so. In one sense, in a, in a very formal sense, yes, the prices have declined. And in overall sense, we haven't seen a significant decline to where people that are shopping for homes or just need homes would be able to, you know, excel a, a breath of relief. That's a really good distinction to make there. In other words, uh, the housing uh, market is still uh extremely expensive for for first time for many first time home buyers who are trying to enter the market um now uh lower prices are great but the key problem of inventory still remains the sort of overheated market and spiking demand most definitely made inventory scarce uh how many available housing units do we have throughout south florida oof so that so that's a question i would have to like just like actually go into the data with because the number is changing so frequently where in which I wouldn't want to give you a figure. But if I had if I had to estimate, and to be clear, you asked me just how I'm sitting here thinking about you like how many uh, like how many available houses there are. Yeah, mm -hmm. the the uh, current inventory. Okay, cool, cool. That's why. So yeah, so I was so yeah. You, I think more in terms of like housing inventory. So I'm glad that you asked that because. Initially, I'm just kind of like, okay, well, if I had to like get the uh, the the numbers, but yeah, from our so if I had to look at like just Miami Dade, uh, as far as like housing inventory right now, we have about because I'm over here pulling up the uh, a table. Yeah, so we have we probably have about I want to say like like so we have like two and a half we have about two and a half months of housing inventory. Um, so- And, and that's in two, two and a half months of housing inventory in Miami-Dade or Broward? Well, okay, no, scratch the, okay, pardon me. I'm looking at like a few months ahead. So right as in Miami-Dade County, we currently have 3.3 3 months of inventory for single family homes. And we have 3.4 uh, months of inventory for condos. And that's in Miami-Dade County. So by comparison, a few months ago, we had like when things were that much more bleak, we had probably about 2.4, 2.5 months of housing inventory in Miami-Dade County. Hmm. So what you also are seeing and just to unpack that, what you're also seeing is that the market hasn't so much stabilized as like the demand has lessened as a lot of people are trying to hold their cars close to, to their chest, if you will. And so let me unpack that a little bit. Basically, 
uh, about four or five months ago at an open house in Miami, let's say on a Saturday morning or what have you, you could expect to see like 40 cars packed outside and a long line waiting to uh, people all waiting to see the same home, right? Well, talking to real estate agents, right? Like as of now, that's simply not the case. Like instead of maybe 40 cars, maybe it's something a little bit more managed, that much more manageable, maybe 10 cars. I mean, it's still it's a lot of people for an open house, but my point is uh, a lot of a lot of people that were thinking about selling before are also getting cautious because the concern is if they sell their homes or their their current property, they don't know where they'll move to live next in Miami, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I'm, I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Miami Herald's real estate reporter Michael Butler talks about how home prices have fallen in South Florida. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us at WLRN. Now, now, Michael, earlier you said houses uh, dropped $20,000, but that overall homes are just too overvalued for a lot of folks. Um, do you see a chance we'll keep seeing these prices drop over time? So this is this is an excellent question, and thank you so much for asking that. So uh, in the, the story that Rebecca Sanwan and I worked on uh, earlier this week, I actually asked the source that very question. And, uh, you know, Vanessa, Vanessa Perry, she's a professor at George Washington University um, in the Washington, D.C. area. She simply said that if anybody tells you outright that they know what's going to happen, uh, not to trust them. And so <laughs> it's very debatable. But I would say this. Uh, we The Federal Reserve Bank at, uh, had another uh, interest rate hike uh, just earlier this week. Uh, I think it, it was about 8.3 uh, last month, and it went up 0.75 percentage points. And so now the interest rate is, I'm doing the math in my head, like it's about, a little bit higher than 9%. This is important to note because um, the connection it has to housing prices is significant. Long story short, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank is trying to steady the ship, if you will, by wait, wait, wait. Just, just to clarify, you're saying that the housing interest rate is not percent, isn't it? Around six percent now, or well, no, the overall, uh, the overall interest rate. Intra the, okay, the overall interest yes, rate. Excuse okay, me. Thank, yep. thank you for correcting me. Um, the overall interest rate has risen. That being said, like the housing interest rate is not as high, but the housing interest rate also, uh, like steadily follows the trends of like. The, the overall interest rate. And so basically like the Federal Reserve is tr is trying to limit consumer buying power because I mean, houses are assets, right? Pro uh, property are assets. And so if you can buy a house, you're accessing uh, the value of that house, which basically is like its own credit line, long story short. So if your house is valued at, I don't know, $400,000, I mean, obviously like, you had to pay it off to get access to the full credit line, but even just a percentage of that, you have access to maybe like $25,000 or $30,000. And uh, there's a there's a very real concern amongst economists that, you know, we are teetering on recession and nobody knows what the economy will hold moving forward. So with that in mind, you're seeing like rising interest rates so, uh, so that you know, borrowers, borrowers were having that much tougher trying to secure loans. 
for houses. Right. Um, and, and, and to and to sum it up really quickly, so the the feds keep increasing the rates, and so as rates go up, it sure doesn't make uh, borrowing against the equity in your home uh, attractive uh, for a lot of folks. Exact. Simply put, exactly. And so there's a re- there's a very real there's a very real dilemma there. And also, like first time home buyers are um, all the most heavily affected people because you know while we're seeing like the new Bank of America program um, that just got launched to support first time home buyers, the interest rates are so high that um, as one individual I interviewed for our st- uh, story earlier this week said. Look, I was uh, look. I have a, a really great job. I was ready to start shopping for a home, but with the rising interest rates, I'm going to wait another couple of years. So, uh, so these are all things to keep in mind when you know we look at whether the housing prices will drop. Um, I'm not saying they they won't continue to decline, but a, a twenty thousand dollar decline when everything is significantly overpriced might not mean very much. So I. So I just say it's everyone, you know, buyer beware. Right. There's a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, we do have a phone caller. Stephen, are you on? Yes, I'm here. Hey, how, how are you, Stephen? You have a question? You have any clarifications? What's up? Uh, I'm having a great day. Uh, some clarifications um, from the trenches. I'm a 40-year real estate professional in the city of Miami and Broward. And uh, I'm listening pretty closely. Uh Pretty much, you know, while your reporter has some of the items fairly good, there's a, a lot of facts and information that is um, uh, not quite accurate as of current. And I'll, and I'll explain why. A lot of reporting that goes through the um, entire news system, remember, they're looking at items that are three, six or so months back. And the trenches, we look at them day to day. So we do have a system, a set of uh, circumstances that are making real estate a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Uh, however, the the fact of prices going down, I think, needs to be addressed accurately. It is list prices that are coming down, really from, let's call them overzealous sellers or people who are looking for a big hurrah and realizing that the market has shifted. And if they're serious, they've got to bring them down. However, the actual sale prices that properties are closing at, the statistics will show you through the board and Florida Sun Stats and so on. We're still experiencing what's approximately an 8% uh, annualized uh, appreciation rate in closed sale prices. Yeah, and, and so I, I think Michael may have um, added some of that nuance earlier. Uh, Michael, would you like to respond to that at all? Or oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, first of all, sir, I, I really appreciate you calling in. Uh, you know, now I, I will, my email is um, online. Uh, I would love it, like if you even felt free to uh, email me one day. It would be great to talk to you more. But in a nutshell, yeah. So this is the thing. Um, I, I I I don't I don't I don't want to like. Uh, implied that I have like the everyday knowledge of somebody that like literally like this is your bread and butter. All you do is like, you know, work, you sell homes. But I think looking at it from a macro level, uh, these are like the trends that we're seeing. And then this is the data that we've accumulated that like just supports like these insights. So I think that to say like, you, I, I don't necessarily, I would not say that like, you know, 
real like real estate agents are are not are not are not active and having a, a significant amount of business. But overall, though, when we look at the data sets, we found that like you know the, these price the these prices have declined now. In terms of like list prices, you know, yes, that that is a big part of it. But also, we're looking at buyer behavior, um, and we're also looking at behavior across Miami Dade. Um, Broward County and even Palm Beach County. Okay, so, so so it's more yeah. of a, a ma macro outlook. Uh, yeah, it's a macro outlook. We, we have another caller. Uh, Sylvia, are, are you on? Yes, I am. Thank hey. you for taking my call. Absolutely. How are you? Uh, do, do you have a question? Well, I had a comment. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to buy uh, my mother's and father's house from their estate. <clears throat> uh, sadly, my mother died a year ago, but uh, I had to pay like three times as much as what she paid. But um, I had difficulty getting financing due to debt to income, but then I did find uh, a non-conforming loan and was able to buy the house. But if I had to, had to buy it on the open market, I wouldn't have been able to do so. So I'm grateful uh, that I was able to buy it. But I do sympathize for those who want to buy and find it very difficult. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Sylvia. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Michael, last question. How, how would you respond to that uh, firsthand um, re report from that from that uh, person? Yeah, I, I think what's really uh, fascinating is and I really appreciate her sharing her insight. So yeah, thank you for calling in. The, re the really fa uh, fascinating thing is how this connects to like lending and uh, the lending the power that banks have had in terms of giving, like helping people secure property. Because uh, one thing that has become abundantly clear is, you know, just independent of like individuals having good, great credit, all that, all that good stuff that you know you would think would line you up for a loan. Um, banks are are being really rigid right now. Lend lenders are being really rigid right now because, and simply put, uh, they're waiting to see. And what direction, like uh, the housing market, you know, here in Miami goes in, hmm. and so I'm hopeful that you know more people that want to purchase homes will be able to, you know, secure the loans that they need to do that. Uh, Michael, the, uh, we're, yes. we're running out of time, so I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, that's not good. My, Michael Butler is Miami Herald's real estate reporter. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, still to come, we discuss a new transit-friendly neighborhood development in West Palm Beach and why the city is ranked number two in homes bought with cash. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. West Palm Beach's Downtown Action Committee approved a $1.3 billion transit-friendly neighborhood. The Transit Village has been in the works for nearly a decade. Also, a new Redfin study ranks West Palm Beach number two in the country for the share of homes bought with cash. Uh, what sort of impact will this transit-focused project have in West Palm Beach? What are your thoughts on homes bought with cash in the hot housing market? Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is Kimberly Miller. She's a senior reporter covering Florida's real estate growth and its impact on prices for the Palm Beach Post. And Taylor Marr, he is the deputy chief economist at Redfin, a Seattle-based real estate brokerage. Kimberly and Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting us. 
All right, thank you for having me. Kimberly, and, and, and it's great to hear you. <laughs> um, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, let's start with you. For, for many years, you've been covering education and weather for the Palm Beach Post, and now you're knee-deep in real estate coverage. For people living and visiting West Palm Beach, what exactly is the new transit village? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, where exactly is the new transit village located? It's kind of wedged into this um, triangle of downtown, which is just east of Clear Lake, which is our drinking water supply lake, but also very beautiful, um, and west of the hub of downtown, so west of uh, the square, which used to be City Place. It is just a small piece of land. You probably, if you're in West Palm Beach, driven by it a hundred times and never notice it. It's about six acres, so it's, it's not very big. Hmm. And, and you can't get anywhere around South Florida without a car, but there is this sort of renewed interest in public transportation. So uh, why not build around it, right? H- how big is this village and what does it include? So it's got, um, it's planned to have four 25-story towers with about a thousand apartments, which will include micro apartments and also apartments for low income Um, They're hoping they'll get some students maybe from the University of Florida, which will be going in their graduate program right across the street. And it's going to have a lot of retail space in the on the bottom floor. It will also have some hotel rooms and some offices. Um, What what the city officials are saying is that, look, right now we do have a lot of people in Florida who are used to being in their cars. That's how we get around. You should come to uh, downtown West Palm Beach in the morning. It's completely um, floored with traffic, but people who are moving here from the Northeast, maybe they've only ever used public transportation. So this transit village will allow them to get to the Palm Beach International Airport in just a few minutes. Um, they can get to Tri-Rail. They can walk from their front door down to Tri-Rail. They can walk to Brightline. Um, Amtrak station is right there at their feet. So you can pretty much get anywhere uh, from this transit village hub. Yeah, and, and that's precisely what makes it a transit village. Is is workforce housing uh, involved in, in any way? Yes, but only very in a very small way. I think they've set aside about 50 apartments um, for workforce housing and then about 200 micro apartments that are typically cheaper in rent um, than, the, than a traditional apartment because they're smaller. So there will be some cheaper places to rent there. And Kimberly, it seems like project officials are paying particular attention to the Clear Lake area, uh, right? Why why is that? You know, downtown West Palm Beach has just exploded in the past two years. It's been an incredible revival and everyone is clamoring to live downtown or in some of the historic neighborhoods around downtown. Um, So the Clear Lake area, which has typically not been very developed, the some of these big developers are swooping in because they see that everything's moving west. So we had all the Palm Beachers sell their homes and move to West Palm Beach. And now, like the people who were in West Palm Beach are moving south and north and west. So, <laughs> um, I mean, we're not being called Wall Street South for nothing. We've got companies like BlackRock and New Day USA and Point uh, Seventy Two Asset Management, you know, putting down roots here. And so they're bringing in workers and. Um, it's just there, there's, you know, limited space around downtown and uh, it's spreading west. 
Right, spreading west. And and this comes at a time, like you said, where we're seeing a lot of investments flowing throughout the city. Uh, even the University of Florida, as you mentioned, is opening a, a graduate school, uh, a graduate school program. Now, um, this was approved. The transit village was approved by the city's downtown action committee. Does it actually need city commission approval? I was told that it does not. Now, unless there are still some little picky things that the downtown action committee wanted um, the developers to do, I mean, fix some small things. And as long as they do that, it shouldn't need city approval or shouldn't even need to go back to the DAC. Um, but if those change substantially, they'll have to go back to the downtown action committee. But I do not, I was told it does not need to go through the city commission. Right. And, and who is behind the project? Who, who are the investors? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why it finally got going after more than a decade of kind of just bumbling around. Um, the Miami-based Related Group that's led by Jorge Perez got involved in November and Globe Invest Limited, um, which is the investment arm of billionaire entrepreneur Teddy Sagi. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. They came in November. They see you know, what's going on in West Palm Beach and they said now's the time to invest. And I think it is. Everything's just kind of happening um, at the same time, and it was Transit Village's day in the sun. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is a South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm with Kimberly Miller, a senior reporter for the Palm Beach Post, and Taylor Marr, deputy chief economist at Redfin. We're discussing the new developments and cash-bought homes in West Palm Beach. Uh, Kimberly, please stay with us. Uh, Taylor, are you there still? I'm here. How are you? Hey, all is well. Thank you. I'm sure you heard uh, all of the expertise that uh, that Kimberly just shared in regards to the explosion uh, of investment in Palm Beach County, uh, particularly in West Palm Beach, the city of West Palm Beach. Now, West Palm Beach is definitely in this sort of housing spotlight. According to your study, uh, the city was ranked number two for homes bought with cash. Is that correct? That's accurate. Yeah. yeah so when we look at all the sales across the country, uh, in a variety of metro areas, more than 41 of them. Uh, West Palm Beach ranks second, only behind Long Island, New York, with the highest share of all-cash deals. Unbelievable. Now, let's start with the basics, though. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of first-time home buyers trying to get into the market. Uh, what is an all-cash purchase? So an all-cash purchase is just simply uh, a change of ownership of the house that does not attach to a mortgage. So when we look at, you know, people buying and selling homes on often on often we can look at the county records and identify, uh, you know, what type of mortgage was financing the purchase. And when there's not a, a mortgage attached to it at all, we infer that that's a, a cash purchase. So, so, so it doesn't go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was, was going to say gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, you know, sometimes these cash purchases do get financed later on. Uh, maybe they're, they're bulk investor purchases that then, you know, other means of financing pop up later on. Uh, but just in the immediate sale of the transaction, what was going on, the terms of the offer, uh, we identify no mortgage. So, so basically no mortgage loan on the deed, essentially. That's right. And, and so what are the factors that are contributing to people purchasing homes uh, with cash? So the biggest one, why we saw a major rise in cash purchases really starts to take place during the pandemic when competition shot up uh, for, for homes, especially in the back half of 2020 and, and throughout 2021 when competition, uh, everyone was clamoring for a limited supply of homes. And one of the best ways to win is to purchase with cash. It more than triples your odds of winning a bidding war. 
And we saw investors also swoop in to, to not flip homes in the real estate frenzy, but also purchase some homes and shift it onto the rental market. So investors are, are a clear player here. Uh, but also boomers have been retiring. They've been selling their homes in coastal cities, cashing in on equity. And that home equity that they've built up over, over decades, uh, they can use that to just pay cash when they downsize for a property. So that's one reason why we actually see this trend popping up in high retirement destinations like Vegas or like uh, West Palm Beach um, in Arizona, uh, all throughout Florida, we see higher shares of cash purchases. And part of that is not just because investors are enticed by, uh, by the strength of the rental market there, but also uh, because retirees are, are often purchasing with cash. And, and uh, last question, how has all cash purchases of homes affect home loans? Are, are they still popular? So home loans are definitely still popular, but during the frenzy of competition, a lot more companies were moving in to try and offer cash as a way to make uh, their clients' offers more competitive. Um, and, and then, you know, kind of bridge the financing later on. Uh, but in general, right now, we're seeing the market calm down, competition is declining in reaction to the higher mortgage rates. And so FHA loans and VA loans and conventional financing, uh, those are standing a better chance now than they have in the past, more able to to get in. So we actually see, you know, still a pretty strong prevalence of uh, of those loans as well. Kimberly Miller, she reports on Florida's real estate growth and its impact on prices for the Palm Beach Post. And Taylor Marr, he is the deputy chief economist at Redfin, a Seattle-based real estate brokerage. Thank you both so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, that would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor. Matt Sanchez is digital editor. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers phones. And I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.